So take your, your Bibles and turn to Psalm 12. Now, my preaching schedule has only been slightly altered by the virus. Last Sunday, I had originally had different plans. We had had different plans for last Sunday, uh, but things changed, so we had to alter that a bit. But this Sunday and, and beyond, I'm, I'm on schedule. Psalm 12 is the next psalm in our work through the psalms, Songs for Life. And if uh, you're just maybe joining us for the first time or the second time through, through live stream, uh, what I do is when we finish a series or uh, there's a, a bit of a gap in, in uh, me preaching on a Sunday or, or something like that, uh, then we interject psalms in between the series. Well, I knew that we, had, we were going to have a special service last Sunday, and it was special. It just wasn't, the special, wasn't special the way we had initially planned it. Um, so the week before, we'd finished Acts and then had a, a, an idea for last Sunday. And then for these next three Sundays, working into Easter, we are going to cover the next three psalms. Uh, psalm 12 today, 13 and then 14 on Easter Sunday. And just to give you a little preview of what's coming, uh, Psalm 14 is, the heading in, in my Bible is, A Portrait of Sinners. And, and verse 7 of, of Psalm 14 says, Oh, that Israel's deliverance would come from Zion. I think that's a great verse to end on on Palm Sunday. Because that's exactly what they were waiting for and asking for when Jesus triumphantly rode in. I know I'm getting ahead of myself, but I'm just trying to get you prepared for what's coming so you know, hey, I want to be here on my couch, same bat time, same bat channel. That's not a good uh, metaphor to use in the coronavirus since it came from a bat. Uh, if you're old enough to remember the Batman TV show, you can forgive me. If not, that's what it came from. Um, so we... Uh, Oh, that Israel's deliverance would come from Zion. When the, when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. And then Psalm 15 describes the godly Lord who, uh, uh, I'm sorry, my bad, I skipped one, didn't I? Psalm 13 is next Sunday for Palm Sunday. And it's a plea for deliverance. And it begins, how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? And it is asking for uh, deliverance. Verse 5, I've trusted in your faithful love. My heart will rejoice in your deliverance. Then chapter 14, Psalm 14, we will do Easter Sunday, that ends with, Oh, that Israel's deliverance would come from Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. And that happened for us as believers on Easter Sunday. It's a great passage to work in to uh, Easter Sunday. I wish I had planned this all, you know, but I'm just doing the next Psalms, and God had it planned. He knew what we would be working on and what we would be going through now. So Psalm 12 is where we are this Sunday morning, and the title is, The Lord Will Guard Us. Uh, the Lord Will Guard Us. Read Psalm 12 with me uh, in your copy of God's Word. Help, Lord, for no faithful one remains. The loyal have disappeared from the human race. They lie to one another. They speak with flattering lips and deceptive hearts. May the Lord cut off 
all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks boastfully. They say through our tongues we have power and our lips are our own. Who can be our master? Verse 5, because of the devastation of the needy and the groaning of the poor, I will now rise up, says the Lord. I will provide safety for the one who longs for it. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in an earthen furnace, purified seven times. You, Lord, will guard us. You will protect us from this generation forever. The wicked prowl all around, and what is worthless is exalted by the human race. Now, Psalm 12 is a psalm of lament. Uh, it, it, it follows in these, uh, these other psalms, the first uh, from Psalm 2, 3 on, it begins a, a group of psalms of lament. And, and we, as, as a church, we as the church, scattered today and, and for uh, the next few weeks, it appears, need to lament. We, as a church, should lament the fact. As a matter of fact, I believe it is necessary that we lament, we mourn the fact that we aren't able to meet right now in person in this room as a church family. I, I think it, is, it should be a part of our grieving process. And let me tell you, as an introvert who is fine hugging if you want to, but certainly fine not, who is fine shaking hands if you want to, but certainly is fine not, I, the introvert, miss my church family. I miss Sunday mornings the way they're supposed to be, Wednesday nights the way they're supposed to be, our D groups the way they're supposed to be. But let's, let's not focus on the supposed to be because the early church did not meet exactly like we meet. We should know that, church, as we have gone through Acts and we've seen what we, we have seen. Whew, bad grammar. We, we have seen what they did, we know that, that they scattering on a Sunday because you had to meet in various small spots, that was life for them. And that can be a comfort to us. We don't want to do it every week, but we know that the church can grow and thrive, see Acts, as a scattered body of believers. And as a matter of fact, as I've said before, prayerfully, hopefully, this time will be a time to strengthen and grow our church more like what God wants it to be. So we rejoice even as we lament. We rejoice that we can meet at least partially, at least scattered through technology. We can come together through computer screens and phone screens and if you have a smart TV, TV screens. Uh, live. You can hear every mistake. I can't go back and edit this. Whatever I say, it's, it's there. So uh, this is just us, and that is a great uh, joy, a great gift through technology. So we, we lament with David in this, the, the subscript, the heading to this psalm for the choir director, uh, according to Shemineth, a psalm of David. And we normally don't focus much on those headings, but this particular heading 
I want to talk about for just a minute because of that according to Shemineth. Now, I don't know what your Bibles say. Uh, is it, uh, I'm going to, you know, we don't often on Sunday morning ask for feedback, but does everybody say Shemineth? Does it have that Hebrew word or does it try to translate it in any of your Bibles? I'm getting nods on Shemineth. Okay, the Hebrew word is there. Now, some of the earliest church fathers, and I'm talking about 200s, 300s, some of those guys, 400 AD, including Augustine, who is, yes ma'am, it, some translate it the eighth, correct. That is the, the translation of the word, the eighth. But uh, some, uh, including Augustine, saw this eighth as the eighth day. Now, what's the eighth day? Well, we jokingly say on the eighth day, God did this, or, you know, he created uh, cinnamon monster cinnamon rolls, or um, he created Coca-Cola, you know, those things that we like. Um, but for the Bible, for Augustine, for some other church fathers, they saw this eighth day, they knew there weren't eight days in the week, despite what the Beatles sang. Uh, they knew that that wasn't the case, so the eighth day, the eighth was some future judgment and deliverance day. So the early church fathers saw this heading for the choir director according to the eighth, according to the eighth day, according to that day when we will be delivered from those things that David talks about in the psalm, a promise of full victory in the life to come. Now, modern scholars, talking about 20th century um, uh, 21st century scholars, 19th century even, uh, scholars see it as a musical notation to be played an octave higher or an octave lower. And Etta, my, my resident music expert, and I had a conversation last night along with some Googling. And as I understand ancient especially, but Middle Eastern music in general, they wouldn't have, have, wouldn't have had a concept of an octave being an eighth. Now, in, in music, it's, a, it's, it's an eighth. It's, a, it's eight uh, tonal, uh, tonal steps, right? Is that, uh, help me out, it's, uh, uh, it, it's, it's eight steps to the, uh, between the octave notes, a, a C here and a C there. It's, it's eight steps. But they didn't do that in Middle Eastern, uh, ancient Near Eastern music. They, they had a whole bunch of steps. If they, 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 had, they knew the idea of this note and this note an octave apart sound the same, but that number eight wouldn't really, as, as best I can tell, would not have meant anything to them. So the idea of the eighth step in music is, I believe, an anachronism to Scripture. So what does it mean? Well, I think it takes it back to that eighth day. What does that mean? Well, we're going to talk about what that means exactly for particularly this passage. And we don't know for sure that's what David meant when he wrote according to Shemineth or according to the eighth. But that's the, I believe that's the best way to understand that. So let's kind of work through this passage a little bit. I've really got 
uh, four points to this sermon this morning, and it's, it's going to move a little differently than usual. Rather than move through the passage, we're going to take the passage as a whole, and we're going to see how it, if, uh, it, it applied, how it affected David then. We're going to see how it affects us now, just in general, today, in our use of words, and then we're going to see how it affects us particularly in this situation we find ourselves in. I said in my uh, video, uh, was it Wednesday or Thursday? I can't remember now when I did a little video about Philemon. And I, I said I didn't want to make, I didn't want to try to shoehorn every passage into what is this saying about the virus. Um, I had a discussion, or there was a discussion in a Facebook group I'm in of, of a whole bunch of pastors. He's saying my next passage is, that, that I was at for this Sunday is the passage in a passage in James. I've forgotten which one it was. And he was asking, should I do something else? He said, that passage just really doesn't go with the virus. Should I do something with the virus? And my recommendation was preach the next text. That's all you do. Just preach the next verse. If that's where you were and that's where you felt like God told you to be six months ago or whenever you started, preach the next verse. And if it comes out that, hey, I see some application here, Great, and if it doesn't, that's probably what your people needed to hear. All I'm doing is preaching the next verse, and I don't want to shoehorn, but I do believe God had some things to say to us about where we are, but we'll get to that in just a minute. The first point I want to make, and again, these points are broadly uh, are, are broad interpretations of the entire passage. It's not point, point, point as we move through the scripture itself. It's the whole passage, I believe, uh, reflects or uh, teaches this point. Point number one, the words of the wicked are falsified by the words of God. Point number one, the words of the wicked are falsified by the words of God. This passage does describe to us the words of the wicked. David begins by saying, help, Lord, no one faithful remains. I mean, we, we kind of have, we hear echoes of Elijah after Mount Carmel, and he said, I'm the only prophet left. You know, we, 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 we hear that, and we understand that in, in a lament, you tend to see things worse for you than they might actually be. They may be really bad, but you see them even worse than they are. Oftentimes it takes someone to come alongside us and say, I understand what you're saying, I know what you're talking about, but let's look at the good things. I saw a cartoon, um, a, 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 a drawn cartoon, not a, not a video. Anyway, uh, uh, where it was brain looking at this one black thing And heart, drawing of a heart, drawing of a brain, over here had a pile of things and a butterfly that, that, that had good written on all of it. And heart saying to brain, come here, come here, look, look at this. And brain saying, I'm busy looking at this right now. Well, that's, that's, 
the way we are. That's, that's kind of what we see in this first passage, this first verse. No one faithful remains. Our, our hearts, if we will listen, our hearts being deceptive and wicked above all things, I realize, but not when they've been washed in the blood of Christ. When, when the heart of God speaks to us, when the one who resides in our heart, Jesus Christ, says, look at what I'm doing. Don't just focus on the bad. You'll see that there is much more going on than you can possibly know. That's what he told Elijah. I got 700 others, man. You're not the only one. I know it feels bad now, but I've got this, God says. But David at this moment feels like he's all alone. No one faithful remains. The loyal have disappeared from the human race. And then he describes the the words of the wicked. He describes them as empty talk, smooth talk, double talk, lies. I mean, he kind of covers the whole gambit of how you can have a, a, a deceptive, wicked person talk to you. Empty talk means nothing. Obviously, there's nothing there. It's, it's just words, no substance. Smooth talk. We know what a smooth talker is. You think of a, a salesman type who's going to get you into that whatever it is that you really don't need or can afford. Uh, double talk. Say one thing to one person. Say something else to another person. Lies just flat out won't tell the truth. And those are the kinds of things that are, are the words of the wicked. He says they, they lie to, they speak with flattering lips. Deceptive hearts. That, that phrase deceptive hearts actually says they are double-minded. You know, I mean, I'm sorry, double-hearted. Double-hearted. We know that when the Bible talks about worry, it's talking about being double-minded of two minds. We you know, think this could happen or we think this could happen. Do I go this way or this way? We're split. We're confused. Double-hearted in this case means that they have two hearts. They, they are their, their double speak, their lies to one person, their smooth talking over here. It tells us that wicked words are part and parcel to their existence. They, they have a, a heart of flesh, but then they have a heart of sin. They, are, they have two hearts on this, and their wicked words, their double talk, is a part of who they are. It, they have deceptive hearts. It almost, though they can, it almost says they can't help themselves. It's just who they are. And they, they, they take this on proudly. David says, may the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks boastfully. Again, he's just rehashing what they are. And, and listen to what they say, how they see themselves. Though our tongue, through our tongues we have power, our lips are our own. Who can be our master? Listen to the arrogance of the wicked-lipped people. I can do whatever I want to. I can say whatever I want to say. I have power. Nobody controls me. Then God steps in. God steps in and and speaks, and it's not common that in a psalm God speaks directly, almost as if 
David was hearing him, hearing God reply directly and immediately to his prayer. But in this case, that appears to be what happens. Because of the devastation of the needy and the groaning of the poor, I will now rise up, says the Lord. I will provide safety for the one who longs for it. God is going to rise up. God is going to act. God is not going to let whatever is going on continue to go on. But then David goes on to describe God's words in verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words. Like silver refined in an earthen furnace, purified seven times. We see here the words of God um, contrasted to the words of the evil, the words of the wicked. In the words of God, we have a statement of protection. In the words of the wicked, we have a, a, a statement of destruction. It, God's word of, of protection, God's words of protection are pure words. It says like a silver that's been, like silver that's been refined, like a silver uh, refined, purified seven times now that's talking about just obviously the process of all right we've got this silver we let it uh go and is my okay um i moved away and it sounded like it went away huh lapel is off okay didn't know that all right so i'll stay where i am um make sure I did my part, and it looks like I did. So, uh, pure words, over and over these words are pr- proven true. The silver is refined, it, it's melted, the dross is skimmed off, it's allowed to cool, allowed to harden. Then you do it again, and skim it, and you allow it to harden. Then you do it again, and you skim it over and over, and you create an extremely pure silver. And, and they didn't do it like that much, I mean, you can, but uh, it's a lot of work, and it makes it that much more valuable, not just because of the silver, but because of the work that goes into it. The other way to look at that is not that uh, God has had to purify his words so much, It is that his words are like someone who would put that much work into the silver. And if you know a silversmith, a metallurgist, who has spent the the time on this pile of silver, then you can trust that that metallurgist will spend the amount of time on all of his other. He, He is known as someone who produces the good stuff, right? It, we, we did that with restaurants. We know those restaurants where they make the good food, and we know those restaurants that make food that fills a hollow spot. You know, I got to eat, and they've got stuff, so I go there. We, we, we love going to those places, and we generally pay more, right? We, we will do that. God's words are those proven true words over and over and over God has shown himself to be trustworthy. God has shown his words, are shown words that guarantee the outcome stated. When God has said it, it has happened. When God decreed it, it came to be. When God promised it, it showed up. But not only have those words 
come true, been guaranteed, and, and a promise that we can count on, we learn that God has words of life. The wicked had words of death. The wicked had words of destruction. The wicked, they were devastating the needy and they were causing the groaning of the poor they verse 5 tells us shows us that when God rises up he was going to provide safety because they were not safe among the ones with wicked words Jesus asked his disciples at one point y'all gonna leave me too his closest his inner circle y'all leaving too and they respond where else would we go? Who, who, who are we going to follow? You have the words of eternal life. Jesus spoke the words of God, words that had been tested and purified, like silver that had been purified seven times. They knew that there was nowhere else to go for pure words than the word of God. David knew that. David saw that right here. So there's, there's David for the people then, which is where we always have to start in Scripture. Well, where do we jump to from there? Point number two, the words of ignorance are falsified by the words of truth. The words of ignorance are falsified by the words of truth. Michael, isn't that what you just said? Yes, but we talked about David's situation then. For a minute or two, I want to talk about our situation now. In our personal lives, long before COVID-19 came up, words of ignorance are always falsified by words of truth. Now, why do I bring up the, the COVID-19? Well, I'll get to that in a minute. Lies and rumors weren't invented by people on social media. Uh, there have always been newspapers, the, uh, um, oh, what do you call the ones like Inquirer and that kind of thing? There's a word for them. Tabloids. Tabloids are not new. I mean, you can actually go back and read some of the... the, the um, cuneiform and paleo-hebrew script and, and the greeks writing things that were pure mess they, they were just written to tear down people they were tabloids and that was 2,000 3,000 years ago this idea of lies and rumors were not invented by uh, was not invented by people on social media what social media does today though is it amplifies them it gets them out so much more quickly you used to have to actually subscribe to the newspaper that that would print that sort of thing to get it out uh, to to know that was going on to to read that sort of thing no longer do you have to do that we 20 years ago 15 years ago it showed up in your email box and you had to scroll 15 pages down to the bottom of your email to find the thing that they were forwarding because you had 15 pages of how many people had forwarded that to get it as a chain letter if you're old enough to remember those it was first it was a chain it was it was tabloid newspapers then it was chain letters then it was forwarded emails and now it's just social media and it's the way it is and we you have we are fairly certain, uh, quite certain actually, that there was no 
Russian Facebook page that won or lost any election. And while we are certain of that, there are still thousands of fake pages and Twitter accounts, and we call them bots, sharing false information. I think the funniest thing I've seen is people who will share a picture of Jesus and say, pray, isn't he beautiful, isn't he wonderful, am I Jesus my Savior, whatever the comment is, and it's a picture of Ewan McGregor, an actor, portraying Obi-Wan Kenobi from the Star Wars movies. And he, it's, he's standing there, he looks, all, he looks all holy, he looks all Jesus-y, and it's not, it's Obi-Wan Kenobi. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're my only hope. Right? Star Wars, you know, maybe you're not a fan. But those are the kinds of things that we get shared. Michael, where are you going with this? You'll see. In the midst of this virus, it's actually only gotten worse. Please talk to your nurse about the things you read on Facebook, about the ways to combat the virus. Blowing a hairdryer up your nose does not work. I got that straight from a nurse. Nurse practice, because her Facebook got used and I got a video and I watched this video and it says stand with the hair dryer up blowing up your nose because at a certain temperature it kills the virus and just stand there and breathe it five minutes a day every two hours or something and I, I, I messaged her back I said is this is this really true no it's mess that got sent on my I'm canceling everything do not it's it and I was okay took me 15 seconds why, why am I mentioning this to, on a Sunday morning? Why am I talking about Facebook? Why am I talking about Twitter? Because Christians can be the absolute worst about sharing this nonsense. It's true, sorry, but it is. You know, Jesus and Obi-Wan Kenobi, it ain't the non-Christian sharing that one. It's Christians. Christians are the ones that are sharing that it's this or it's that. It's a vast left-wing conspiracy. It's, it's this, all these. It's Christians that are doing this. Christians, stop. Those watching on the very Facebook that you're sharing it on, stop. Please. Christians above everyone else should care about truth and not participate in sharing falsehood. When you come across something, what have we always said for years and years and decades and centuries? If it's too good to be true, it probably is. If, if you can kill the virus by gargling coffee, you don't think the CDC would have told us that by now? If it's too good to be true, it probably is. Most of the time, two minutes or less of an internet search will disprove that meme that pithy quote or that scathing takedown of, of someone on a political side different from yours. That's all it takes. Type it in. Is, does this happen? Does this, is, is so-and-so doing this? Is PayPal going to give me $1,000 because of the virus? And it takes, blink of an eye, no, 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 no. And there you go. We have to care. Christians, we have to care about truth. What's the point of this? Words of ignorance are falsified by words of truth. And believers must care about truth more than anybody else. We should, anyway, 
It should be the number one thing we think of. When Pilate asked Jesus what is truth, he was saying, eh, is there anything that's true? And we as believers say, absolutely yes. So we should care that words of ignorance be falsified by words of truth. And not everybody out there that's posting things, creating content. I'm not talking about those of us who share it. I'm talking about the creators. There are people out there that create social media content just to see how stupid it can be and how far it will spread. I'm I'm telling you, there are people that sit there and think, what outlandish thing can I type up today? Gargle coffee. Let's see if people believe this. Enter. Did you know you can gargle coffee? Click, click. I have a friend who's a nurse who has a friend who's a doctor who lives in India who says that her dog said that this was a great idea. And we think it's wonderful and, we, and we're, we're all scar- scorching our throats, gargling coffee, and all we're doing is creating blisters and still getting sick. This idea goes back to pure speech. It goes back to double speak that we talked about when we talked about what David is saying to the people there. We have to protect our speech. And here's why. If we will stand on social media or on the public square and say things like, and I'm going to continue with my stupid example, gargle coffee... And Jesus is the only way to heaven. And everybody knows gargle coffee is the dumbest thing they've ever heard. And they're pretty questionable about whether Jesus is the only way to heaven. Why are they going to believe us? Why? You make idiot comments like that. Why am I going to believe you about this, you say, equally or more important thing? When they're saying... I could die from the virus, but I don't feel a bit different whether I know Jesus or not. Do you see why truth has to matter for the believer? What we share, what we say, what we purport to to believe and to be the truth, that matters. So we need to share those things that are true. We need to talk about those things that are true. All right, so we've looked specifically at David and his people. We've looked broadly at us as individuals, as the church. The third point is the words of calamity are falsified by the words of promise. The words of calamity are falsified by the words of promise. And here's where I want to be careful that I don't shoehorn this passage into our situation, and I don't think I did. The words of this virus, if this virus could speak, the words of this virus are only calamity for this world. This virus, as it is, as it exists, only brings death, pain, and economic collapse. And there's no notion of when this will end. There's no certainty of what's going to happen. The the uncertainty is that if it acts like the flu, and they don't know for sure that it will, then the summer months it will die down. But what happens when we get back to flu season? We get back to cooler months. They don't know. Could we see this spike again? They don't know. Will all of these measures not only uh, keep our health care system from collapsing, but will it also 
cause the virus to go away. That seems unlikely, but they don't know. We don't know what is going to happen next month, this summer, this fall. Some of the earliest, and they were the earliest, and they were the worst case scenario prognostications were two years we're dealing with this while we wait for vaccines, while we try to control the spread of it. I don't know if those two years have, have, have been squished down to a shorter amount of time or not, but that was the earliest uh, experts' opinions. And that's all this virus has for us. And that's just this virus. Y'all, all the world has for us is words of calamity, words of death, pain, economic collapse, and no notion of when it will end. That's all the world will bring us. Are there times of joy and, and all these wonderful things and the beauty of creation? Yes, I, I, I know that, I believe that. But the end of the world is destruction. The world. I'm not talking about just the planet. That's part of it. I'm talking about the world, the, the worldly system, the, prince and the uh, uh, principalities of the air, Satan and his kingdom versus the kingdom of God. The world versus God. The world loses. Destruction is the end. This world has only words of calamity. And that's why I like... The eighth, according to Shemineth, as the eighth day. The day after the destruction of the world. The day after the world ends. The day after all the words of the world run out and no longer have their power. On the eighth day, God. God has the last word. The promise is that the Lord wins. That's what falsifies, the, uh, the, the promise falsifies the words of calamity. The promise is that the Lord wins. Is all creation groaning? It is. Is Jesus coming back? He is. The groaning will be falsified by Jesus' return. The promise is that this is not our home. The promise is that death and pain and economies will all come to an end. And we will live eternally with Jesus in the presence of God. That's the promise. And that falsifies every pain, every hurt, every death, every lie, every heartache, every bankruptcy, every bad economy, every stock market drop, everything that we say is bad gets falsified and done away with on the eighth day when Jesus returns and we get to go home and be with him. The Lord wins. I've not written any scripture, Paul has, though, so he puts it better than me. And I love that in our connect group, we're in Romans, because this passage from Romans chapter 8 speaks to it beautifully, exactly what I'm talking about here. The promise, according to Paul, when he thinks about it, Romans 8, 18 through 25, if you're taking notes and want to go back and look at it later, Paul says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time 
are not worth comparing to the glory that is going to be revealed to us. The words of calamity are falsified by the words of promise. Verse 19, for the creation eagerly waits with anticipation. Is all creation groaning? For God's sons to be revealed. Us. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Is all creation groaning? It is. In the hope, in the confident expectation that Lee talked about in our Connect group this morning. In the hope that the creation itself will be also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies, the words of promise, the eight day according to Shemineth we have the victory he says verse 24 now in this hope we were saved but hope that is seen is not hope because who hopes for what he sees now if we hope for what we do not see we eagerly wait for it with patience today We, as we read the words of God, as we understand that you, Lord, will guard us, we wait with hope. We wait for the end of a virus, a pandemic. We wait for the end of a a downward uh, nose-diving economy. We wait for the end of our pain. We wait for the end of our loss of loved ones. We wait for our end of struggling and suffering under sin, we eagerly wait knowing that we have confident expectation in the victory that God has promised through our Savior, Jesus Christ. Point number four, and this is where we get to. The words of sin are falsified by the cross of Christ. The words of sin, what sin has to say to us are falsified is falsified by the cross of Christ. This is our ultimate and final hope. This is really our only hope. I've said it before here. Other pastors have said it before me. As believers, this earth is the only hell we will ever experience. As an unbeliever, this earth is the only heaven you will ever experience. And if this is heaven, I want off the ride. Okay, but it's not. This is hell by comparison, and it is the only hell we experience. And our ultimate final hope is this time and an eternity with Jesus. Sin, the words of sin, the words that sin uses to describe you, are words like worthless, no good, unloved, unsavable, rejected. Those are the words sin uses to describe you. They are lies, they are empty, and they are deceitful, as David says. The cross, the cross says, 
this. The cross says you are incredibly sinful and desperately wicked. Michael, that's not what I wanted to hear. Well, I know it's not. But you need to hear that first. Notice the difference, though. Notice what sin says. You're worthless, no good, unloved, unsalable, and rejected. The cross says you are incredibly sinful and desperately wicked. Scripture tells that about us. That is true. The cross also has different words, though, for us when it says that Christ is incredibly loving, sacrificial, and perfect. The cross says that we are incredibly sinful and desperately wicked. The cross says that Christ is incredibly loving, sacrificial, and perfect. The cross shows us how incredibly sinful and desperately wicked we actually are. It took that to save us. That is true. And therefore, the cross says to us, not just about us, but to us, the cross says, you are loved. You are worthy of Jesus' blood. You are made clean. You are purified. You are accepted. You are eternal. You are promised. And you are hopeful. That is what the cross says to us. What it says about us is true. What sin says about us is nullified by the cross. It is true that we are loved and we have a Savior who hung on that cross. The words of sin are falsified by the cross of Christ. So what should I do? What should you do in response to this message today, in the response to Psalm 12 and what David tells us? First, believe and share the truth found in the Word of God. Begin there. Begin with His truth in your belief and in your sharing. Believe that, say that, speak those words. Trust the words of God above any other word. If the Bible says one thing and everybody else says something else, then everybody else is wrong. The Bible is true. Trust Christ to defeat the words of death and sin. Trust the words of the cross. Trust what the cross says about us, about you. And respond to that through faith in Jesus Christ. And then, once we have placed our faith in Him, once we have trusted Jesus Christ as our Savior, trust that the Lord will guard His children. Our promise is secure. Our end is guaranteed. The eighth day is coming. And it might be next week. Wouldn't that be great? That would be a nice end to the virus. Jesus comes back, and it's all taken care of. And it may be a thousand years from now, but the promise is no less true based on timing. The promise is true because it's based on the God who made the promise. So how do you need to respond today? Maybe you need to trust the words of God above any other. Maybe you need to trust Christ to defeat the words of death and sin in your life. Maybe you need to lay off some of the social media a little while and let God's word speak to you more than the memes, more than politics, more than even the CDC. Maybe you need to trust Christ as your Savior today. Maybe you need to understand that this world of sickness and pain and death, that was not God's design for us. 
That was not what he purposed. But when he designed it, when he put all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden, we chose sin. They chose it, and we still continue to choose it. And our sin leads to the brokenness. Our sin leads to this fallen world, this world that suffers under the sin of the people who who inhabit it. It groans for salvation as well. And that brokenness, though we try to fix it, though we try to work our way out of the brokenness and we put band-aids and we put duct tape, it just doesn't fix it. It doesn't work. The only fix for the brokenness in this life, the only promise that we have, the only guarantee that viruses and sickness and death and bad economies will be overcome is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is what promises that we as believers will only experience this earth as hell. The gospel makes clear that if you don't believe in it, this earth is the only heaven that you will ever experience. And we respond to that gospel, the message that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Perfect Son of God died for us because of us. And we can respond to that salvation, his gift, his sacrifice in our place through repentance and belief. We turn from our sins to follow him and we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and is the sacrifice that we need. And then we begin to recover and pursue God's design. See, it is the believer recovering and pursuing God's design when we say things like, viruses and economies don't shake my faith. I look forward to the eighth day. That is us recovering and pursuing God's design. That is us experiencing God because of our salvation. It's not fatalism. It's not, well, I just don't care what happens to me. We do, but we approach every situation knowing the sovereign God who is in control of it all. Though he slay me, I'll still worship him. To live is Christ, Paul says. To die is gain. So this morning, trust Jesus Christ as your Savior and pursue his purposes in your life again. Pray with me. Father, thank you, Lord, that you continually give us words of hope, that your word is a better word than any word we can come up with. Your word is a better word than what any sickness, any disease, any virus, any government, any, any pain, any, any death, any depression, any addiction, better than any devil, better than any sin can say to us, your words are perfect, and in them are hope and life. And God, we thank you for that. The strength that we have to trust you in the darkest times. God, we see it throughout church history. Wars and pestilence and plague, and the church stands strong because of our confidence and our faith in a Lord who will guard his children. Thank you for the truth of your words. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, maybe you have a, a decision to make this morning and you want to make that public, and you can do that right there on Facebook or, or YouTube. You can say, I want to accept Christ as Savior. You want to send us a message 
uh, a private message to the church, you can do that as well, and we would love to get back to you and talk to you appropriately, social distanced, uh, about that decision. Maybe you have other decisions to make this morning as a believer, words you've been believing, lies you've been believing from the devil, from the world, and you need to trust the words that God has for you, and you can do that right there at your couch. We're going to sing one more song. We're going to worship. We encourage you to worship along with us and let these words of his settle in your heart and push out the words, the lies that the world has told you.